0: I think Romeo and Juliet is a play where Shakespeare is discovering his genius in a way. He's discovering his abilities. He's experimenting with the possibilities of theatre like no one has ever done before. It's a play that's got extraordinary energy um, and dynamism, and it's a play that belies its reputation as as a play which is just simply about young love. I think it's a fearless play. It's It's a play that takes its... That sort of the premise of the action and and of the emotions to the very edge of possibility. Juliet is a trailblazer for Shakespeare's adventures in, in the possibilities for better and for worse of humans, of what it means to be a human, of human subjectivity, of human citizenship. So part of Romeo and Juliet's appeal is that it's about what is possible now for a person, or indeed what is possible now, or what might be possible in the future. It's always looking ahead to futures, equally what is not possible. And I think Romeo and Juliet is a, a play in which you can just see this mastery of, of, of his instrument, his instruments. And I, th- I think that makes it an audacious play, a play that's total, as I said, totally fearless, totally unafraid of the difficulty and the darkness of its own subject matter. I'm Simon Palfrey. I'm a professor of English at Brasenose College, University of Oxford.
1: Welcome to Shakespeare for All. Today, we're speaking with Professor Simon Palfrey about one of Shakespeare's most famous works, Romeo and Juliet. Written in the mid-1590s, this beautifully lyrical play tells of two rival families, the Montagues and the Capulets, who are entrenched in a deadly feud. But Romeo, the Montague's son, and Juliet, the Capulet daughter, fall in love and secretly marry. This couple has become an icon of love recognisable around the world. But as the play announces from its very first lines, this love story is also a story of loss.
0: Romeo and Juliet is a, is a relatively early play of Shakespeare's but we mustn't see it as some kind of juvenile young man's work. It's an absolutely extraordinary exercise in stylistic and theatrical and linguistic virtuosity and daring. It pioneers techniques of everything, of characterization, of strategic irony, of ways of representing emotion that open the door to Shakespeare's subsequent career, especially in tragedy. Romeo and Juliet is a play which explores, as no other play does, the risk and peril of desire and its intimacy to death. At the same time, Romeo and Juliet is a, is a, is a tragedy of not just of desire, but of love, of needing another, of depending upon another. Not just not just sexual love or erotic love, the love of friends, love between parents and children, even children and their parents. It's a play which which gets right inside that basic human contract, that basic human need.
1: The play begins with a prologue. Two households, both alike in dignity, In fair Verona where we lay our scene, From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, Where civil blood makes civil hands unclean, From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, A pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows do with their death bury their parents' strife. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which, but their children's end, naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend, what here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. Interestingly, Shakespeare reveals the story's ending at the beginning. We know right away that Romeo and Juliet will die. We also see right away the feud that contributes to their deaths.
0: Verona is a city full of kind of hothouse energies, full, full of libido, full of violence and full of this kind of irascible, easily aroused, hot-tempered young men who fight and who make this immediate equation between fighting and sex. And this is like just a, a kind of a prelude or a reward for their for their violence.
1: In the first scene, Capulet servants exchange sexually charged jokes before starting a quarrel with Montague servants, which escalates until both families are fighting in the streets. The prince declares that the next person to disturb the peace will pay with their life. It's only now that Romeo enters. His mind isn't on the feud, but on love. He's infatuated with a woman called Rosalind, who rejects him. He expresses his desolation in the cliched paradoxes of Renaissance love poetry, lamenting that he lives dead without her.
0: Romeo is notoriously wrapped up in totally borrowed language. He speaks from a textbook, you know, speaking with the the Italian Renaissance poet Petrarch, my love is like fire and all sort of stuff, and it's just complete cliché that he speaks.
1: Romeo's friend Benvolio says if he could just see other women, he'd quickly forget Rosalind. The opportunity comes soon. Romeo and Benvolio learn that the Capulets are holding a party that evening. Like Romeo, Capulet Senior has love on his mind. After the fight, we see him talking with an aristocrat named Paris who wants to marry Capulet's daughter, Juliet.
0: Paris is trying to get her hand in marriage and getting permission from her father. She, she she's spoken about by about by her father, who says she's she's yet a stranger in this world, and yet she's the only child of his who is still living, and that's really really important. And, and of course, infant mortality was a disaster at the time, but we have this idea of this this child is precious.
1: Capulet says Juliet is young to be married, and that Paris must win her love. Lady Capulet tries to persuade Juliet to favour Paris, enlisting the help of Juliet's nurse. The nurse is a memorably buoyant, talkative figure who steals the scene with long reminiscences about weaning Juliet and Juliet falling down as a toddler, a story that turns into a bawdy joke it is from the nurse that we learn how young Juliet is, just 13 years old. In 16th century England, the average age for marriage was close to what it is now, somewhere in the mid-twenties. Juliet herself seems to think she is young for marriage. It is an honour that I dream not of, she says, but to please her mother, she agrees to look to like of Paris's love.
0: Juliet, her world is completely defined by the household, by the nurse, mother, father. There's no way of mediating between home, family, filial duty, and the outside world, whereas Romeo has that buffer of friends. I think it's a really important difference.
1: That evening, Romeo is with his friends Benvolio and Mercutio, an energetic, witty young man, on their way to gatecrash the Capulets' party. Romeo is anxious. He dreamed something dreadful would happen tonight. Mercutio laughs at his worries, delivering a speech both fanciful and frightening about the fairy queen Mab, who sends sleepers their dreams. Romeo still insists that he fears some consequence yet hanging in the stars, that will lead to untimely death. At first, his premonition seems utterly wrong. At the party, he sees Juliet and falls instantly in love. His former love for Rosalind disappears, as does his old way of speaking about love.
0: When he sees Juliet, his language suddenly changes. Oh, she teaches the torches to burn bright. And it's a very simple and rather lovely kind of image that is completely new to to Romeo's way of speaking so far. It's not borrowed, and and it's in touch with the sources of energy. She teaches the torches. She's there at the source of energy, of of heat and light.
1: Did my heart love till now, Romeo says in astonishment, forswear it sight, for I ne'er saw true beauty till this night. He draws close to Juliet, and she too discovers a new way of speaking. The play's prologue has the form of a sonnet, a poem of 14 lines with a set rhyme scheme, often on the subject of passionate, disappointed love, a form that originated in Italy and became all the rage in England in the 1590s. When Romeo and Juliet first speak, they exchange 14 lines that together form a sonnet. They literally speak to each other in poetry. Romeo begins with the sonnet's A-B-A-B rhyming quatrain. If I profane with my unworthiest hand, This holy shrine, the gentle sin, is this. My lips, two blushing pilgrims ready stand To smooth that rough touch with a tender kiss. And, at the conclusion of the sonnet, they do kiss. Still... Romeo's foreboding of disaster is not wholly wrong. Tybalt, one of the Capulets that is most fiercely committed to the feud, overhears Romeo and is outraged that a Montague has invaded their party. Capulet stops Tybalt from attacking Romeo then and there, but Tybalt promises ominously that Romeo's intrusion, which seems sweet now, will prove bitter to him soon. Once they have parted, Romeo and Juliet also discover that the other is a member of the enemy house. But the discovery doesn't alter their newfound love. Romeo steals into the Capulet's orchard and watches as Juliet comes out onto her balcony. But soft what light through yonder window breaks, it is the east and Juliet is the sun. See how she leans her cheek upon her hand, Oh, that I were a glove upon that hand, that I might touch that cheek. Thinking she's alone, Juliet reflects on her new situation while Romeo and the audience listen.
0: Up until the balcony scene, it's Romeo's movement which is crucial. Romeo is the one who is moving. Romeo is the one who is leading things on and, and, and Romeo is the one who we are closest to. And so our desires are absolutely in league with Romeo's desires. We're feeling with him, we're desiring with him, we're listening with him, we're watching with him. But then as that scene goes on, the the balcony scene goes on, slowly but very, very surely, Juliet takes over.
1: Oh, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou Romeo? Juliet says, asking why or wherefore, the man she loves has to be Romeo Montague, a member of the family that her own is sworn to hate. Couldn't he just as easily not be a Montague? Would that really change Romeo as a person? What's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet. Romeo would be just as wonderful if he were not a Montague, and Juliet would rather have him than be a Capulet deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not be but sworn, my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet, she declares. Romeo then reveals himself. Juliet is startled, but quickly takes control
0: of the situation. She is the one who controls the pace of the scene. She is the one who controls whether what, exactly what's going to be said, what's going to be vowed, what's going to be understood. She's the one who brings it to a very, very quick contract. And from that moment on, she takes over the play. And she's the one we're closest to. She's the one who has the most extraordinary speeches and, and so forth.
1: Juliet asks straightforwardly if Romeo loves her and frankly acknowledges her newfound passion for him in an exuberant, hyperbolic style that the lovers often use. "'My bounty is as boundless as the sea, my love as deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have, for both are infinite.' Juliet is interrupted by the nurse, who calls her inside several times, but she returns to take firm control of the direction that this new romance will take. If Romeo's love is honourable, that is, if he wishes to marry her, he can send word to her tomorrow. For now, she bids him goodnight. Parting is such sweet sorrow that I shall say goodnight till it be morrow. Romeo goes straight to his friend, Friar Lawrence, to ask him to perform their marriage that day. Friar Lawrence is surprised and a little dismayed to hear that Romeo has forgotten Rosalind so quickly and wants to marry another woman right away. "'Wisely and slow, they stumble that run fast,' he cautions. These sorts of proverbs and wise sayings are typical of how the friar speaks."
0: The Friar is without question the most tedious character in the play, and, and he's given these long, long speeches, full of these moral sententia, all these aphorisms, and you, they're often sensible and, 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 and they are wise, but they're also out of key, and, and, and they don't answer to the problem.
1: Even the Friar doesn't take his own advice. He acts just as hastily as Romeo when he agrees to marry the couple that very day. He hopes the marriage will end the family's feud and serve to turn your household's rancor to pure love. The couple meet at Friar Lawrence's chamber where their passions overflow into more hyperbolic poetry. "'Love devouring death, do what he dare. It is enough. I may but call her mine,' vows Romeo." while Juliet proclaims, My true love is grown to such excess, I cannot sum up some of half my wealth. Again, the friar urges caution, saying, These violent delights have violent ends. But the marriage is nevertheless performed. In the next scene, the rancor of the feud reappears. Tybalt, still angry, challenges Romeo to fight. Romeo refuses the challenge, telling him, I love thee better than thou canst devise. Tybalt is, of course, Romeo's cousin by marriage now. Mercutio is outraged at Romeo's dishonourable submission and takes up Tybalt's challenge instead. Mercutio and Tybalt draw swords and fight. Romeo attempts to part them, but Tybalt stabs Mercutio under Romeo's arm, and Mercutio receives a fatal wound. He dies, crying, "A plague on both
0: your houses!" Shakespeare is really interested in accidents, and and in what accidents mean. To suggest this is something mere plot device is just misses Shakespeare's alertness to the tragedy of life. And I think there's a mistake. I think there's a way in which critics sometimes want to understand tragedy only in terms of kind of cosmic ideas as though it's Sophocles or something Shakespeare's absolutely alert to the suddenness of life you know to, to, to the sudden changes whether they are happy or awful you know that's what happens With Mercutio's death
1: Romeo's mindset alters Juliet thy beauty hath made me effeminate and softened valour's steel he laments as if love had made him a coward Now he does confront Tybalt and kills him. Realising what this chance encounter with Tybalt has cost him, he cries, ''Oh, I am fortune's fool!'' As punishment, he is exiled from Verona and from Juliet. Meanwhile, Juliet has been waiting impatiently for Romeo and their wedding night, saying longingly, ''Come, knight, come, Romeo.'' but the one who arrives is the nurse, wailing, he's dead, he's dead. Juliet fears that Romeo has been killed. When she learns that he has killed Tybalt, she is initially furious, but quickly chides herself for not being loyal to her new husband, whom she still loves. She sends the nurse to invite Romeo secretly to her room that night. Romeo is with Friar Lawrence, almost ready to kill himself in despair at being banished. The friar urges Romeo to join Juliet that night and wait for news in nearby Mantua, while the friar plans how to reveal their marriage to their parents and win pardon for Romeo. The couple spend their wedding night together. In the morning, they grieve as the rising sun signals the day when Romeo must leave Verona. No sooner has he departed than Juliet's mother tells her she must marry Paris in three days. Juliet is horrified and flatly refuses to consider the marriage. Her father is outraged and threatens to expel her from her home and family unless she obeys. Alone with the nurse, Juliet cries for help, but even her nurse says that she should forget Romeo and marry Paris. Speaks thou from thy heart? says Juliet in shock. Feeling betrayed by her last friend, Juliet goes to Friar Lawrence. If he cannot help her escape this forced marriage, she says, she will take her own life. But the friar thinks he has a solution. He will give Juliet a potion to make her appear dead. Her family will bury her in the Capulet tomb where she will wake and Romeo will come to take her away. Juliet agrees to the plan. She pretends to consent to the marriage with Paris, but the night before the wedding she takes the friar's potion.
0: She goes to her parents to say, "Okay, yes, I'll do as you tell me, I'll marry Paris and thank you, yes, good night, good night, darling, good night. And and then there is the sort of terrifying moment where she's agreed to take the sleeping potion and she's had all her visions of going to sleep amid bones and corpses and all that.
1: Despite her fears about waking up alone among the skeletons in the tomb, Juliet does take the potion. When her family come to fetch her for her wedding, they find her lying motionless and believe she is dead. Unfortunately, Romeo believes so too. Friar Lawrence sent a message to him about the plan for Juliet to fake her death, but the message never reaches him. Romeo hears that Juliet is dead and, in his devastation, he buys poison and goes to her tomb. At the tomb, Romeo encounters Paris, who has come to lay flowers for Juliet. Paris threatens to have him arrested, and Romeo kills him. He then opens the tomb. His first reaction is awe. Juliet looks as lovely as she did in life. "'Death hath had no power yet upon my beauty,' he exclaims. But it does not occur to him that she is not actually dead." Romeo takes the poison and says, Eyes, look your last, arms take your last embrace, And lips, oh you, the doors of breath, Seal with a righteous kiss, A dateless bargain to engrossing death. Thus, with a kiss, I die. A few minutes later, Friar Lawrence enters the tomb and Juliet awakes and sees the dead Romeo. The Friar urges Juliet to leave with him. The city's watchmen are coming but Juliet refuses to leave Romeo. I dare no longer stay, says the friar, and he flees. Quickly, before the approaching guards can stop her, Juliet bids goodbye to Romeo and stabs herself with his dagger. Outside, the watchmen apprehend Friar Lawrence and call up the Montagues, the Capulets and the Prince, to whom the friar now tells the whole story. The prince tells the families that their children's deaths are a punishment for their hatred and Capulet and Montague make peace. The prince concludes, Never was a story of more woe than this of Juliet and her Romeo.
0: Romeo and Juliet is the world's most celebrated tragedy of love. And it's, it's a play in which it's not so much that... The, the tragedy isn't so much that love is impossible the tragedy is love, and that love, as Shakespeare sees it, is the heart and the origin, the cause, the destination of tragedy.